This is a conversation with Judy Neal, who is the president of the Edge Walkers International, the founding president, and also is very instrumental in creating the Global Consciousness Institute. You'll hear about both of those for sure, but in particular, you're going to hear an extraordinarily inspiring practitioner, teacher, coach, writer, interpreter about spirit and spirituality in all the places where you don't hear much about either in businesses, in some institutions. But Judy will never give up on her belief that when we bring spirituality into other aspects of leadership and learning, greater things can happen. And boy, does the world need greater things right now. And certainly the work of Judy Neal. So here she is. Judy Neal. Now, there, underline in your brain, Judy Neal, because she will make an impact on you as you listen to this conversation. And and I might have a word or two as well, but Judy and I have known each other a long while in our roles as management educators and thought leaders. <laughs> and uh, I've never forgotten Judy's voice for two reasons. One, you'll hear it. So it's very listenable. And secondly, when she sings, she picks up that guitar and she would sing. And we'd have these different meetings at the Academy of Management, the Eastern Academy of Management. And invariably, someone would say, okay, Judy, bring, bring out your guitar, sometimes with Mike London. Good times, right, Judy? Oh, wonderful, wonderful memories. And the power of music to bring community together and build bonds. It's just magical. Those are yeah. wonderful memories. And and that's what happened uh, in those times. And so I would go maybe a year between times seeing you. But because of those many times that we were able to gather and, and have those moments, uh, I think it added luster to the, uh, the already fun meetings that we would have as as academic scholars, teachers, particularly as teachers. Now, Judy is uh, founded a, an organization called Edge Walkers International, Edge Walkers International, and she is the president and does has a great newsletter, <laughs> which um, I'm going to be reading regularly. And a lot of other ways that I've known of through some of my friends who've been in touch with Judy for, even before Zoom was around, Judy, for uh, conference phone calls where you would be able to convene people to have conversations. Why don't we start with telling me, reminding me of the Edge Walkers initiative and why you undertook it and how it's doing. Oh, thank you. 
Um, so I've been doing research since the early 90s on spirituality in the workplace, mm -hmm. which um, felt kind of edgy. <laughs> <laughs> still is. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. still is, but not, not as much as it was. Yes, uh, I agree. But for my own personal reasons and the power of spirituality in my own life uh, and what a positive different spiritual practices made to me and spiritual principles, um, I began seeking other leaders in business and in other artistic domains who also felt that their spirituality was really central to who they are and how they live and how they lead. And it, um, you know, it seemed like a strange thing to do because the, the back in the early 90s, when I first started this, the general thinking was spirituality was woo-woo. It was airy-fairy. Those were some of the common words that were used it's just like mm -hmm. it wasn't grounded it's not practical maybe you're you going can't measure it measure <laughs> it yeah if it if you can't measure it it doesn't exist right that's right exactly <laughs> and uh this whole idea seemed countercultural i guess and i was teaching in a business school down the street from you mm -hmm. and um you know but i i just felt called because it was so important to me to to describe this phenomenon and interview people who had a strong sense of spirituality whether it came from a religion or um just more of a you know personal spiritual path that they discovered themselves and i began to see patterns in the things people were telling me the basic questions i asked them were to tell me about their career path and major turning points in their career mm -hmm. and their spiritual path and major turning points in their spiritual path. And at what point did they become integrated? And so I just kept hearing these stories of transformation and of discovering ways of making a difference when you're guided by your spirituality. And so it was counter to this impractical story mythology that was going on about spirituality. It was actually that spirituality is very practical and mm -hmm. can make you, if you, you tune into your particular spiritual path and practice it, can really enhance your leadership and your impact. And so I got this idea that that these leaders were integrating the spiritual world and the material world. They were walking between these worlds and integrating them. And that, you know, led to this idea that they were edge walkers. And uh -huh. when I started uh -huh. asking people, you know, um, what does edge walkers mean to you? Uh, I would get these wonderful definitions of being on the leading edge um, mm -hmm. and, being edgy and innovative and creative and futuristic and different things that people would say. And again, I, I really started to pull that together and ask people, well, how is it? What helps you to integrate your spirituality and your leadership? What are the activities you do? What are the beliefs you have? What are the qualities that are in you that help you to do that? And 
that led to me writing the book Edgewalkers mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of trying to codify what the qualities were, what the skills were, what this means for organizations and organizational cultures. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was that was the beginning. It was just writing the book based on all those interviews. Yeah. And and then one time I was with Mel Toomey, our dear beloved friend, mm-hmm. uh, at his uh, organizational leadership program. And one of the members, Carlos, came up to me. And he had read the book. And he said, what are you doing with this? The word was like, doing, right? Yeah, what am I doing with this Edgewalker book? And yeah. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I wrote it. <laughs> it's on the shelf. <laughs> and he said, you got to make a machine. You got to make a machine out of this. I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I, I know Carlos. I've met him. I, oh, I hear him. He actually yeah. came to my class once with Mel and, and mm-hmm. with uh, Fred Robinson. Yeah. And I can yeah. hear him saying that. You know, and of course, he was saying what? machine, machine. It's got to yeah, be that, machine. That, yeah. okay. <laughs> From Let's, Puerto Rico. I, and, I, and I thought. That um, intensity that Carlos When you had. said that, I could hear you. I can almost hear him when you said that. Now, therefore, you had no choice but to do more. <laughs> well, especially when you said, I'm going to be your coach and I'm going to help you. All right. And so right. that really began the idea of creating a community of people mm-hmm. that felt drawn to this idea of workplace spirituality and this walking between worlds, this edginess. Um, and the, I had found that using terms like edgewalker was maybe a little more broadly acceptable than spiritual leader which is what academics were talking about, spiritual leadership. But I yeah. wanted to be able to reach into organizations. And at that time in the 90s, the word spirituality had baggage. It still does in a lot of mm-hmm. places. Yeah. In fact, the, the words people are more comfortable with now are mindfulness, Yeah. which is one approach to spirituality. Yeah. But that that's where it began. And um, I began holding... Edgewalker cafes, this meetings in my living room and other people that I was affiliated with would hold Edgewalker cafes in their living room, including like Dubai and California and all these exotic places. So, you know, there were starting to be these groups of Edgewalkers coming together and supporting one another. Populating out around and propagating. Uh, When one is in a meeting, like that, what does one do? <laughs> well, they really were like mini workshops. You know, it would there might be a topic, or there might be an exercise, or something that would involve people and get them sharing about their challenges or their visions. Uh, for example, one of the exercises I love doing in retreats and workshops is called an Edgewalker Quest. And we've done this in a couple of Edgewalker cafes where you ask someone, each person, to write down a question that they're grappling with that Mm -hmm. they can't solve in a linear, rational way, that they actually want um, spiritual help with in some way, some spiritual guidance. And so they write the question down, and we do a little ritual as they then walk outside for 20 minutes in nature 
actually we, walk. <laughs> yeah. Literally walk. Yeah, walking. <laughs> and we, if the ceremony as they walk is they walk from the material world into the spiritual world with their question. That's the guidance that's suggested. Mm-hmm. And that um, part of the exercise is you don't see anybody else and they don't see you. You're in your own energy and not distracted by anyone else. You're in your safe place. And you can look in nature for guidance. So you, as you walk, there might be a bird that comes or there might be a particular flower or a cloud goes by in a certain shape. Whatever it is, you're walking out in nature as many indigenous groups have done for millennia mm-hmm. to look for guidance for a, an important question. And you may find what we call a power spot. There may be something that draws you that seems to be a little brighter, like a little more energy that feels like your spot. You might go and sit there and wait for an answer or see if some animal shows up or, you know, the way that they've done and vision quests for, again, forever. And you can do it in 20 minutes. So they'll go out for 20 minutes. Normally something comes. Yeah. Every time, every time something comes and then they'll come back to the group and they'll share their question and they'll share what showed up and what it means for them. And it's really powerful. It's very beautiful what people experience. So so one time when there was a challenge at OBTC, there was a, um, I forget what the name of the session was, but we were asked to design and offer an exercise in five minutes. And then you could debrief. I might have attended that one. You probably were there. (laughs) I would have been attracted to that like a a, a, a bee to a flower. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, maybe there was 20 of us and each of us had five minutes with like one minute to process. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I did this Edgewalker quest. And I remember it was a large circular lecture room that we were in. There were glass doors on the side of the room, and it led out to a cement enclosed walls with two play, a patio with two trees. And so 40 or 50 people went out those doors to do this question. They were mostly hanging around the trees, you know, talking to the trees or listening to the trees because that was the only nature there. Yeah. They came back and shared. So they went out for like one minute because, you know, you go outside, you ask your question, you listen, you come back in, you share with two or three people what happened, and then two or three people share in the large group. That was my five minutes. Yeah. When someone, one person shared, they were in tears. In that short period of time, something happened for them. And it's the power of the question and then opening your heart for answers with not trying to solve it linearly. And, and sincerely wanting mm-hmm. that answer, yeah. not just uh, playing, yes. playing a game. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, there's so much proof in what you just shared already, Judy, about um, how our spiritual nature is on tap, mm-hmm. but the tap sometimes can be screwed very tight. <laughs> and uh Sometimes so it's we just not, need permission. I mean, exactly. You don't have to like bring 
a spirit in and install it like so much of the management mm. uh, tactics try to strategy and so forth well we've got to bring this model in and install it we've got to bring this in and put it in you because you're deficient and one ah. of the many reasons that i really admired you so many years is i've never felt a, a moment in your presence when you didn't believe in our sufficiency that we can do a 10 minute walk and come back with something or five minute mm -hmm. exercise and you didn't blink. I think probably some of us look, is she blinking? Is she like, no, no, you just, is it will work. And so it did. So how, um, I know I'm zigging you here a little bit, but I, I'm quite fascinated with how we um, loosen the faucet on our spiritual nature um and mm -hmm. keep it there not just ah. loose it and tighten it again but yeah i mean some of us old main yankees we you know <laughs> we got it tightened and we weld it <laughs> we, no, no one's it. gonna know that i have a spiritual nature mm -hmm. but once we open it a bit it, it then we start seeing a lot more of the wonder um, around us and yeah so Beautiful. the question Beautiful. is how do we keep it get it open and keep it open mm -hmm. um in the the research that i did those interviews i found that you're talking really to me about turning points that what is the turning point where you really own that you're a physical being and a spiritual being Yes. And we might add intellectual and emotional. We're we're all these things, but we tend mm -hmm. to deny the emotional and the spiritual. Uh, the um those moments most frequently come from loss. Yeah. That that we lose something really important, whether it's a spouse or a job or are diagnosed with a serious illness. There, there's those challenges of loss where we lose also our sense of who we are because we've mm. been defining ourselves in some kind of role and that yeah. gets stripped away in that crisis. Yeah. And the, you know, the existential question then is who am I and what am I connected to? That's the most common of the stories I heard that becomes the wake up call. Uh, and, but it's not the only path. Mm -hmm. There are mystical experiences that come unbidden to some people. And in my, you know, I've never codified it, but, you know, I'd say somewhere between two and 5% of the people I interviewed, that untightening of the screw came from for one person, he's Jewish, and he walked into a Catholic church in Canada, and there was it was filled with light, and he got a message and a real vision of what his work was. That was he was moving from strategic planning to workplace spirituality. This, hmm. you know, just sudden light and wake up call of this is your calling. This is what you're going to do, and that's Martin Root. If you've known his work, he wrote um, Chicken Soup for the Soul at Work. And and look how look how popular that, yeah. that book, book still is. I mean, when it came out, uh -huh. and uh, I I can picture some of my students who actually bought that book because and it wasn't even assigned 
right. That was a good sign back in the uh, mm -hmm. in the early two thousands. Yeah, and what Martin's working on now is a what he calls Project Heaven on Earth, and he asks people to identify what heaven on earth is to them and then to think of something you could do some small thing you could do to in to manifest your vision of heaven on earth today in the next 24 hours it's one thing you could do and now go ask somebody else what's their vision of heaven on earth and what are they going to do and, and he's got a whole website and now a book about that. You know, that that was a wake-up call. And he's making a, a global difference. Oh, this sounds so damn simple, though, Judy. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's un, the untightened from the strategic planning, um, mm -hmm. you know, a way of doing things uh, to following guidance, trusting, surrendering. Now those oh, are yes, but it is so counterintuitive to the way we prepared so-called managers over the our our time as we were mm -hmm. managing. It it and I used to write and Peter Vale, who you know is yeah, we would knew be on this call right now, yeah. hugging you and, and saying, you know, because he never doubted spirituality in all the years I knew him from the time mm -hmm. he was my teacher in the late 60s to the day he passed away. It was his spirit after all the rest kind of gave out with his paralysis yeah, yeah. that made it be Peter every time I spoke to him on the phone and then on Zoom and ultimately mm -hmm. work with his writing. So it, that I, I think my my point is that it bothered him almost from the beginning at Harvard Business that um there was so much uh, pressure to condense and uh, bottle almost what you should do as a manager. Mm -hmm. And then guess what? You like to ship in the bottle. You, you know, you, you can't get out. And so over the years as a teacher and dean in other ways, and as a member of our society, Eastern Academy and OBTS, um, you know, Peter used to say, let let let's all breathe let's let students breathe let's let your readers breathe don't jump into five conclusions even though he and he hated lists but he made them but he also <laughs> but his point was i've made my list you make yours but my lists are not the grail you know in fact wow. if you make your list whatever the question may be that's the one you're going to follow anyway because you're not going to remember my list and mm -hmm. and when he wrote uh the book the first one, managing his performing art, he, he said that, and he said it in our book at the at the end. He said, "Just open and stay as you're educating in a business school. Give people a chance to leave that business school as superb learners, mm. and then the content somewhat they'll remember as long as you give them a a roadmap to where to find it again, and they'll go and read it if they'll want to." They won't have to. They'll want to. Now, do you ever have uh, management, educators, business school people uh, in your in your uh, edge walking groups? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yay! 
Well, and, um, you know, and consultants and business leaders and healers and artists and, mm -hmm. you know, people from all walks of life. When we do a, a monthly Edgewalker Cafe, you know, with COVID, we went online like everyone else. And it was amazing how that expanded our reach to the Middle yeah. East and Japan and Africa. And, you know, it's just became much more global. And, um, and so we have people from all different walks of life, but there's also another organization that is just management educators and scholars that are focused on spirituality and faith and religion. And that's the management, spirituality and religion division at the academy. We just became a division this year. Oh, wow, that's great. That's, that's yeah, a big step. Very, it's huge. In the academy, that's a big step, uh, I guess you say up, uh, but it does give mm -hmm. um, a legitimacy and, vis and visibility to exactly. uh, this, this uh, realm of thought. So that's great. Yeah. So, you know, we started that. Um, I was one of the founders of like 23 or 24 years ago. And our idea was we wanted legitimacy to allow faculty to teach about spirituality. And as you say, to allow people to find their own path, no proselytizing, but to honor the religious traditions, the ancient wisdom, and the daily inner wisdom that we can find if we get quiet, as you've talked about, and just really listen to our heart. There's so much wisdom there instead of following the models. You know, we are the model. And yeah. So um, we've got a journal, an academic journal that's highly ranked on called the Journal of Management, Spirituality and Religion. And, um, you know, now we've become a division. There's 600 people from around the world who are members of this. We call MSR by the initials uh, and it's growing. And so. The ripple effect, we hope, is that it just becomes another that you talk about communication or leadership or strategy or spirituality. Those are just different things that are part of running organizations and being a leader. And so we just want to have it be in the same breath as other topics. And it is. Wow. that's, that's You must feel very, very good about that. Really. I'm just so thrilled. And I'm particularly thrilled for the students who come from non-Western countries yeah. who are getting legitimized by coming to the academy and knowing that there's this group. And then they can go back to their departments who want them to do... Um, analytics. More, yeah, analytic, more traditional. Well, and you still can do analytic. There's all yeah. kinds of ways to be... You know, you talked about earlier in our call... Um, you can't measure it, but there are ways to measure certain variables, and you can do quantitative or qualitative research. You can do autoethnography. There's just all these different methods, um, and the, all of those become legitimate forms of knowing that can be also wisdom that can guide leaders. So if these faculty or future faculty can embrace spirituality as a normal part of leadership, which is Peter was so much about that. He, oh, yeah. he really helped to legitimize the conversation because he was so revered for his work that when he said spirituality is important, people kind of went, whoa, if Peter Vale says that, 
I got to, I got to think about this. I agree. Yeah. And I, so I, I certainly miss his presence and his voice because there's so much. Uh, well, I actually like, hear like that, that, you that he used to do. You don't miss his presence. No. Because you feel it. Oh, absolutely. That, that's, you know, you've yeah. mentioned that here in this call. And so three, three or four years now since, um, well, he passed away three years ago when we started the collaboration. Uh, I was at a point where I had retired and I, you know, I had a little health challenge and I was like, oh, you know, might as well throw in the towel. It's at what, 74, 75. Yeah. You know, huge loss. I, I, I didn't have the towel in my hand, but I thought it, you know, because I love <laughs> my family and I am curious about what's next, but the connection with Peter at that moment just seemed like what you talk about. It's a turning point for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think it was for him. Because when he reached out to me, he had this raw manuscript, which is now our book, but he was in hospice. That's I mean, he had been living with such pain for so many years that he couldn't, he said, all right, I'm kind of have to give up and take myself off the meds and go into hospice. When we started talking and optimistically, mm -hmm. spiritually, uh, I think that's how we connected about this project that he really wanted to have the world see and read. He's eventually within a few months, he took himself out of that status. And I remember his daughter saying, you don't know all the stuff he had to go through papers. He had to sign, you know, to get himself out of that realm mm -hmm. and back into um, collaborating, but he did. And he did it right up to our last day. Mm -hmm. So there, there you go. And yes, that yeah. presence is going to be with me mm. forever. I want to, um, you also, when we first started the call, mentioned another organ. Is, is that what you meant when you mentioned, be sure to ask me about? Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't jot it down. Judy, yeah. what about that thing that you asked me to ask you about? <laughs> <laughs> the thing I asked you to ask me about is the Global Consciousness Institute. And That's before it. I talk about that, I, I, I do want to say something about what you've just shared about Peter that really moves me. And that is spirituality and a sense of purpose and mission and service to the world is life-saving. It is life-giving and life-saving. And your story about Peter is such a good example of that for both you and Peter. Yeah. Because if you lose a sense of purpose, you feel like there's no reason for you to be on the planet. Yeah. Our our life leaks out of us and we can get sick and we can curl up and die. Yeah. And to have a sense of purpose and mission is so fulfilling and that to me is a spiritual gift. We yes. can't think our way into that. We have to feel our way and listen our way into that. And that's what both you and Peter did. And it happened for me, actually, in a workshop given by Daryl Connor, where I had been sick with a respiratory, you know, chronic bronchitis, chronic asthma, getting worse and worse, sick more and more of the time, turning down jobs, turning down going to conferences, because I didn't know if I would get seriously ill at anything I did. And so I just stopped making commitments. And couldn't I couldn't even sing, could you? If you're I couldn't sing. You're right. And that <laughs> yeah. for me is you know, singing is like letting spirit run through me. Exactly. And 
I at this workshop, we were paired up with somebody else and there was some questions and things like that. But what happened is the other person saw in me that I still had a sense of purpose. I didn't feel it. I felt I'd given up on myself, but she saw it. She described it and I felt it. And I became so committed to doing whatever I could do to get healthier, to fulfill that sense of purpose and mission, even if it wasn't clear to me at that time. It was this just this powerful sense of energy and movement forward instead of throwing in the towel. And that led me to this uh, building this whole Edgewalker community and now to this other organization, a nonprofit called the Global Consciousness Institute. Mm -hmm. And that has arisen as um, an evolution from focusing on leadership and spirituality, which is, you know, at an individual level, it's at a team level, it's at an organizational level. But as I look at what's going on in the world, with climate crisis, with autocracy, with polarization, with social justice. There's just, there's what they call the meta crisis. So many crises happening at once that my sense is something new needs to be birthed in humanity collectively. My work's been individual before this, but something needs to happen collectively for us to come together to respond to these crises. It's, you know, I can turn off the lights in my house and save electricity, but that's not gonna solve climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so there, there needs to be things happening on a systemic level, and we need to be educating leaders to think globally from a different perspective, and think is maybe not the right word, to relate, to be, global leaders to see themselves as a global human yeah and and so i'm working with a team of people from several universities and um from coaches and various people that to create curriculum to identify who else is working on global consciousness in the world to build what we call mapping the terrain but Mm -hmm. is really a, to build a network of like-minded people. Um, and our focus is to transform higher education, to include spirituality, consciousness, global thinking about these big issues. And like Ion, Ion Mitroff is a part of that, you know, you yeah. Ion. Yeah. Um, and so that that's really in its infancy. Um, but full of great potential. And we're working with different uh, foundations and corporate funders to get this off the ground. And that's, um, I, it's like 50% of my time is in edge walkers in this community of uh, workshops and certifying people and coaching and all that. And 50% of my energy is getting this nonprofit really um, off the ground and funded and building another community i mean it's probably the same community but just to expand there'll be others there'll be other types of folks and realms yeah. but it, it occurs to me as you mention it that the it's definitely needed but to see this galaxy of colleges and universities mm-hmm. all over the world because in every company country yes there's some academic institution existing if you look at 
that galaxy of potential changing, the doing will happen differently mm -hmm. than if you said, oh, we're an institute, we're going to hold conferences and we're going to have um, publications. Oh, we also are going to be, our, our purpose is to get to the people whose thoughts create and sustain these schools and get them to think differently about what they teach and how they teach so that the scope of their graduate uh, mind, graduate mind and heart will be much broader and richer than had they received a diploma for not uh, flunking, uh, what's the course that used to really bug my my Traveler's Edge students um, was uh, a math course. Uh, what the heck, Dave? I may have to edit this this moment out. <laughs> What's the course that is so much a stumbling block for business students that they have statistics? That, but there's something in the that's taught in the math departments. That, oh, I don't know. But we get the point. Yeah, but I was going to be brilliant with it too. In my analogy, but but I remember, uh, well, for one thing, all those prerequisites we'd place in the freshman year, almost nothing gave them a chance to get excited about business or see business as social or see business as yeah. something that, that requires, uh, you know, talent and energy. It was like, you got to take these math courses and you got to take these two statistics, um, yeah, statistics, and you also have to take it accounting one and two. Yeah. Now, if that had ever come my way, I would not be in a business school ever. Like <laughs> as, as you just saw, my my memory isn't different now. It was the same back then for things like, <laughs> what's the name of that area of math that they had trouble with? But my point is that we were squeezing these spirits into um, submission and... Uh, what I would say, because I taught the sophomores when I, by choice, I wanted to teach the intro. I said, now <laughs> it's okay in my class to get excited. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Just don't let anyone, any mm -hmm. of my, my mm -hmm. stodgy business colleagues know that you're actually happy about um, your, your future in business because you should be. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of growth and learning for you. And then we take off from there. And I know that was to be true of the way you were teaching at your university back when you were doing that. Yeah. But let's bring it around finally, because I'm watching the clock, that my point was that a goal to have higher education worldwide. Mm -hmm, that network uh, of universities. And... Yeah, wake up and, uh, or be, they're already awake, but bring their wakeness to others. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's hope. It's, there's real hope. Mm -hmm. And here's one quick reason. Um, we see it all the time now in, in the chronicle of higher education other places. Schools are losing losing students. The enrollments are down. They're, they're cutting out humanities departments of all things. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's a, there's a sort of a mechanistic response to the fact that, they, they don't, that their revenues aren't what they needed them to be. And, and rather than having the excitement of saying okay we can't do this anymore what else can we do it's going the opposite but not all schools are doing that and if they catch on to people like you and 
Ian and others were saying, hey, uh, you still got a space, you still got a, a charter, you know, uh, there's there's a globe out there that's in, in great need of, mm -hmm. of the kind of thoughtful people you can graduate. Let people know that's your, that's your uncover that, un, unscrew that and open it up as your purpose. Yeah. And yeah. I think it might it might just go. If I were hanging out my shingle again in, in academia, I'd want to work in that school. <laughs> well, maybe you can be a part of our community and help us identify other universities or individuals so that we can build this network. Because yeah. when people feel like they're the only one, it's yeah. pretty easy to feel too far out on the edge and to give up. But when you know you're part of something that's a trend that is emerging, that's essential for moving the human race forward, then there's excitement. Then there's something you can really fulfill your own unique purpose and mission as being a part of that and contributing to that. And, and um, you know, when you talk about the universities and kind of those deadening sort of courses, the hot, the ones that are hard to get excited about. I mean, it reminds me in a way of, of Peter being paralyzed and of me being so sick and, you know, and the container getting so tight. I had um, a master's student who said, all we're being taught is how to uh, really get the highest position we possibly can and make the most money we possibly can. That's yes. the only thing we're being taught how to do. And he's, he was very pained. He said, there really isn't anything about who I am and why I was put on this earth. It's only about profit and success, financial success. And you could see it was it was painful for him. Yeah, but yeah. what and that what if university because university business schools are designed to do that, to make That's financial it. success so the alumni can now donate back to the university and all that. Oh yeah. But the, the ironic thing is it's not either or. If you're truly following your passion and your sense of mission, then you're likely to be financially, not necessarily but you're likely to be more financially successful. And that even if you're not, you're, you always have enough. If you follow the spiritual path, you're well taken care of. There's a sense of trust and surrender. What if we can teach that to people who are going into business to not have to be so greed-driven and success-driven, but purpose-driven? Oh, yeah. And and we have so many things to have purpose about, you know, again, the climate change and the social justice and just, you know, and building a better world that works for everyone. It's not just the problems, but there's also huge vision for what's possible if we come together. Well, folks, if not if, because I am on the edge, trying very hard to walk. Both with both uh, one foot in one and one in the other. I would, uh, I would not want anyone else but Judy Neal as my guide. <laughs> I wouldn't want anyone else but you, David, as my friend. Thank you so much for all these years of friendship and for all that you do and all the people's lives you've touched. Thank you know, it's we'll never know, but we have to trust that we've made a difference and that we still can. 
Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcasts, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcasts page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book On Practice as a Way of Being is available now in digital form, something that would be new, like podcasting to many of us. And it's a, a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www.mylibrary, one word, dot world slash practice, and you'll see what I mean. Thank you.